Hello, everyone. Welcome to the show, Me, Myself, and TBI. I'm your host, Christina Brown Fisher. My guest is author and supermodel Claudia Mason. Claudia has appeared on the covers of some of fashion's biggest magazines, including Vogue, Elle, Marie Claire, and photographed by legends of the modeling and fashion industry, from Stephen Mizell to Mario Testino. In 2016, Claudia Mason debuted her first book, Finding the Supermodel in You, The Insider's Guide to Teen Modeling. In 2010, she suffered a stroke. With no warning signs, no family history of stroke, her decades-long career almost came to an end. Claudia joins me to talk about how she navigated a comeback after suffering a devastating brain injury. Hi, Claudia. It's so great to have you on the program. Hi, Christina. It's so lovely to be here. Thank you. Thank you for joining me. First of all, how are you doing and how are you feeling today? I'm feeling good today. Um, In general, I'm doing well. I want to talk about uh, your journey, not only as a model, but a brain injury awareness advocate. But first, let's talk about your modeling career and and what a career you have had. In your book, you tell the story of how you were discovered not far from your home in New York City by one of the nation's top modeling agencies. Please tell me what happened that day. You know, it's a day that I will never forget. Um, I was just uh, a few months before 14th birthday, so I was 13. And um, New York City, New York, I'm born and raised in in Manhattan, and I was on the Upper West Side, my uh, old neighborhood where I was raised, and there was a store, perhaps you would have heard of it, Christina, called Tower Records. The kids will have no idea what we're talking about. (laughs) Um, But it did exist then, and what a store it was, what a brand. Anyway, I was in looking for music with a girlfriend from eighth grade, because I was in the last year of middle school at that time. And... um, this was across the street from Juilliard where I was at School of American Ballet student because that was my life was ballet at that time. And a scout came up to me. Um, she, I'll never forget it. Like it was as if it was yesterday. She, nor- she said, I normally look for sh- shorter girls. I was five foot 10 at 13 and my friend was five feet. She ignored her. And she said, I normally look for shorter girls. Uh, but I saw you, please give my car to your parents. Uh, call, come in and, and see us. We're a modeling agency. And so what I remember from that event, which changed my, the course of my life, definitely, but is that my friend Bridget, we called her Bridget the Midget. She was that short. It's horrible. <laughs> nice. but we're talking about 13-year-olds. Cool. <laughs> Kids can be so cruel. <laughs> Kids can be so cruel. And she um, turned the rest of the nine girls in that private school that I was in against me the next day because she was so incensed that the scout didn't come up to her. So of course, that's what the 13 year old remembers, right? My brain. But in terms of that actual event, I think the card sat on the bookcase for a while at home. And finally, my father took me in a few months later, I think I was around 14 at that time. And the elite petite division, which the scout was a part of at that time, sent us straight to the regular offices because I was five foot 10. And it, it happened very fast, Christina. I mean, that's in the entertainment industry, you know, you have, as I always say, especially with modeling, there are tons of beautiful boys and girls being born and growing up and, you know, getting older every day. So what is it about the beauty industry, the modeling industry that grabs certain looks at a certain time? Because the look is in, which has to do with the zeitgeist and so many different reasons why some look is in, right? 
So not putting anything, any of myself down or any of my talents or any, anything, but there's, you know, my look was in at that time. So I shot to the top right away and Steven Meisel and Vogue and Revlon and Karl Lagerfeld and Avedon campaign with Johnny Versace, uh, uh, excuse me, Versace campaign with Richard Avedon when I was 15. But the thing is with all of this, and it was elite, the biggest agency in the world at that time, Ford was the only competitor. Um, now you have so many, it's, everything has changed. This was pre-internet, oh, shock of shocks. Whenever I say that, I'm like, oh. Anyway, um, but we love our age. We love where we are, even though I'm not going to tell you what it is. Who cares? Never. La, 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 la. Those are top secrets. Secrets, of course. I'm yeah. right there with you. Trust me. Yeah. I'm right there with you. So um, my parents, you know, were just not as, as amazing as it was to be plucked from obscurity by the entertainment industry. And this happens to kids who are singers, actors, you know, the models, the athletes, the musicians, this is the entertainment industry. And it can happen that fast when someone's talent and look and all of that is boom. But my parents, although they realized what this opportunity was, how could they not? They were not interested in me leaving suddenly high school, which I had just started when this was happening, you know, to, to, to just forego a proper education and, 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 hope that this would go well. So I had to, the rule was I had to finish high school. We transferred me to a high school in Manhattan, professional children's school that would allow me to have some hours off if I needed. But really, Christina, it's a great small private school, professional children, children's school. And I really was in it more than some of the other kids that, that you know were with the New York Philharmonic or whatever they were doing. And I got a great education. And my parents said, you have to get into college. So we turned down a lot of work during high school. Even though I went to this school that allowed me to be off more, there was something that just didn't feel right. And I make that point because it's so important for kids not to think, to drop everything for some, sh just because the entertainment industry may be knocking, they could stop knocking in two seconds, A. So you got to finish high school. Especially, I mean, you have to finish high school. So I finished, I got into three great colleges. And at that point, it was like, the industry is not going to keep knocking. It's now four years later. It's great that they still are knocking. So are we going to really, am I going to really do this now full-time? At that time, you couldn't do college and model at the level that was coming in, my, that was coming in for me, the jobs that were coming. So I moved to Paris. Those were my, my college years were in Paris modeling in Europe, mostly and back in the States. And I never actually went to, to any of those colleges I got into. But the fact that I got in and I stayed on that path from age 14 to 18, I will never stop talking about, and I want, because it's very important to me, I, I'm coaching now with younger people and, and adults, but the idea of leaving, high, not having a high school education is, is insane to me. So I, I, find, I find it very important. I don't care how much money someone is throwing at you. Uh, you gotta have prop, high school at least, so. Was there any, um, uh, Claudia, when you look back on that time, because you're, you're talking about, first of all, you're talking about the time when the phrase supermodel was coined. Your peers were Cindy Crawford, Naomi Campbell. I've seen some of your photos, which are just amazing. Uh, was there any one particular photo shoot or campaign or particular fashion show that you can count as your favorite? The one that you say, I am never going to forget that. There's so many, and it's so odd that the first one comes to mind is, it must have been because I was so young and it was all so new. Carl Lagerfeld uh, was, before he became so celebrated internationally with Chanel, he was probably at Chanel then, but he had his own line of, he was designing for Revillon furs. 
and I'll never forget this at the plaza in New York. And Iman was there and all Pauline and all of these girls who were before me, but they were still doing it. And I was, you know, a baby, but they were, and again, it doesn't, kids don't normally model now really full-time before 18. I can't stress how important that is. You're not prepared for it. And I'll never forget looking at, I just, Iman, Paulina, Yasmin Lebon. I, I was like, am I thought of, not that I, I didn't think of myself as unattractive. I just never thought about any of that. Modeling was not in my headspace. I was going to be a ballet dancer. And so it was like, oh my God, these incredibly beautiful women. And now I'm one of them. And it was just, and I'm modeling fur coats at the plaza. Like what? You know, I grew up in, in a middle-class uh, household and I wasn't in want of anything, but I certainly didn't, I, I, I knew that I didn't always get what I wanted and I had great uh, upbringing in that way and boundaries and you work hard for things and you appreciate and you, you know. So it wasn't as if, oh, a fur coat. It's not about a fur coat. That didn't mean, but it was this whole like princess world. And I use that word, which is a childish kind of way to look at it, but it's not, but it, it was because you were, I was 14 or 15 years old. It's like, you know, so it was really amazing. And then I remember Christina being in Hawaii uh, on a shoot for a Jimmy Z's sports line with a, a surfer dude and the waterfall that they shot King Kong, Jessica Lange and Jeff Bridges waterfall and were being helicoptered in. It's like, what, what, what? Wow, wow. Very, very fabulous. Very fabulous. What happens in 2010? Take me back to that day when your world changes. So in 2010, so now 10 years ago, I was, I mean, my height of my modeling career was in the 90s. That was really my time and the supermodel time with all the lovely women you mentioned and my peers and other ones. Fine. I had already um, been an actress in LA and did produced and was focusing on other things besides modeling. I hadn't stopped modeling, but the height of it, I kind of was interested in doing other things. So when this stroke came around, I had just moved God, back home to Manhattan from Los Angeles. And I went into a dance class, my first love, although I never did it professionally, I kept up with jazz classes. And the choreography that night called for a lot of quick head turns. Jennifer Lopez, Beyonce, they all do, we've seen it a thousand times. It's, you move, flip your head around and the hair follows. And I'd done it many times in my life, that move. It's a jazz move. And um, the choreography called for it. Class ends. All I know is I'm fine. I'm not aware of anything different. I say good night. Went home to sleep, an uneventful night's sleep. Woke up the next day and I had an appointment in Midtown Manhattan. And as I walked into the very noisy lobby for this appointment, I, I started to have the worst headache of my life. So this is now 9.30 in the morning, the day after the dance class the previous evening. And crowded lobby and I just suddenly, my vision is going in and out. And I'm thinking, did I eat enough food? Is this a low blood sugar thing? What is this? And I'm seeing kind of rainbow colors and it's sometimes ignorance is bliss uh, because I thought it was like the most, in a way, the most beautiful kind of thing, but I couldn't see. So I knew enough that that was something is wrong. And I thought, is this a migraine? I couldn't see in front of me, but my eyes are open and I'm seeing all these colors. Something was wrong. And the woman, a stranger saw that I was having a problem. I think I was sitting on the lobby steps and she thanked God for this woman took me by the hand, led, led me out of the, the, the crowded lobby. We sat in the next door cafe. I still couldn't properly see. She had to call, use my phone, because I couldn't use it, to call. The only person I thought of was my father. I just moved back from LA a few months ago. And by the time he arrived, 
my most of my vision came back like it is today, but there was this spot, which is still today, to the left side of my visual field, a rather large spot that is still missing. And he came and I didn't want to go home, so I went to his place and I think I passed out, took a nap, woke up, and I said, something is wrong. I don't remember what time I we went to the hospital. I said, something is wrong. I still have this spot missing. It's like I have a patch on my eyes. And we went to the hospital, but after the CAT scan and the MRI, I guess I described to whomever I had to describe what was going on. They give the test, the imaging, and a bunch of doctors walk in. We know from too much TV in America, you don't want a bunch of doctors walking into a room. And the head of the stroke center at that time at Roosevelt, now it's Mount Sinai, said, you know, Miss Mason, you've, you've had a stroke. We need to know what's, what's gone on in the last 24 hours because you're so healthy. You don't have any family history of stroke. So we, they traced it back to the, that rather aggressive head toss in the jazz class the night before because, as you know, Christina, and as the audience, just to remind the audience that strokes um, can happen at, to anyone at any time at any age, um, mostly it's from impact, I have learned, but I'm not a doctor, I want to be clear. If you if you don't have a family history like I don't, it comes out of the blue like that. I mean, there was a, I was in the hospital for six days recovering, no surgery, but just um, the medications and stuff. And there was an eight-year-old boy down the hall. And obviously, Hippocratic Law, I don't know anything more about him, but one of the, whoever told me at the hospital, that he had the same thing I did, affected the occipital lobe region of the brain, this particular stroke, left vertebral arterial dissection that from the neck toss that affected the uh, right occipital lobe region of the brain. Occipital lobe region is what controls our vision. So I had no cognitive or muscular fallout, but it was that. So this person said that this little boy from a skiing accident had the exact same thing happen. So it can happen to anyone at any time at any age mostly from impact if you're not an elderly person with heart you know the the, the stuff that pre-existing or family history do you remember what you thought you know well, i'll tell you exactly what happened i sat there and you're in that hospital gown and you already feel so you just don't feel your powerful self hospital gowns it's amazing how powerful that is and you're in a hospital room Thank God my parents were there, obviously, in their street clothes. And I say that only because I'm trying to answer the question as best I can. So I'm in this hospital gown. My two older parents are fine in their clothes. You know, it's that already felt that I never experienced that before in a hospital. And they all this team of doctors, they come in and the head doctor says that. And I remember looking on the floor and my hair tie, my hair band, it was a black hair band, must have fallen at one point. And I just noticed it on the floor. And I just remember that, thinking, oh my God, what is gonna happen? Am I dying? Is my life over? What's happened to my brain? But isn't that funny that whatever that connection is to that hair tie, because suddenly that was like my past life, right? The hair tie, the dance class, I, I'm, I'm indestructible, which we feel. You know, and then that little hair tie of my dancer self, am I ever going to dance again? I mean, it was so, that's the moment that I remember my parents almost, my mother almost passed out or practically did. My father, who's always so fine and together, and he looked down and just looked like he'd been punched. And it was just horrible. So often we, we look at people who are close to us, especially parents, and see how they react, still even as an old, you know, an adult, an older person. And that can even affect, it made it feel even much more serious and awful than I could have. Heavier. Heavier, exactly. 
Awful. It was awful. As bad as this was, there was something, there was some light to this. I, I, I didn't feel that it was a death sentence. And you said yours was? Yeah, left vertebral arterial dissection because it originated in the neck. And uh, what part of the brain was affected? The occipital lobe, part of the occipital lobe, which is the occipital re lobe region, of course, is, is the one that controls our vision. So thank God. Thank God, first of all, I didn't die. Number two, thank God that most of my vision came back. I can't even imagine otherwise. Number three, I mean, th well, those are <laughs> one and two. It's like one or two. One and two are pretty big. <laughs> yeah, those are, th those are really big. At what point, because you talk about at least initially, just being in shock. At what point are you thinking about, um, will I leave the hospital? Will I have a career? How do you process how you're going to take that first step to recovery? Those, so those six days in the hospital were something else, Christina. I mean, I have never been in the hospital before like that. I don't even remember my hospital visits before that, actually, before this whole time. And you're in, I'm in a bed and, you know, my mother's curled up in a chair for the first two nights, the poor thing, because she just can't pull herself away. And I thank God she was there. But then I said, you know, we go. so then being alone in the hospital during the night when no one's there, oh, and they nurses, God bless them, come in and have to intravenously give you God knows what, and you have to swallow. And then my head was full of horror and then there was a part of me Christina that somehow one of the days I was uh, you know the, during the day I'm sitting I did not want to watch television I'll never forget that I wanted to read and I asked my mom to bring me a couple of books I just wanted to read as much as I could because I wanted to challenge that I that, that whatever I thought I could do to help this 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 visual field partial visual field definitely and TV just was light was too much that's right I remember that too so television was awful and I remember sitting during the day in the hospital in one of the chairs in the room, in the gown, greasy hair. I didn't, I mean, I didn't care, but just letting myself go to that place. And a little voice inside of me, you know, I've always been very spiritual, but it, it still was very strong. It said, you are going to be, you're going to get through this or however it said, you're going to get through this. And um, I, I can't remember it now. Word, but it was a very strong feeling and it was so thank god because i i was like where you know you were i was at sea kind of feeling with myself i couldn't imagine how do i even work as i've known how do i relate to myself as this person in front of a camera what are people going to think of me i'm am i handicapped now again how crazy that this happens and no one can see basically looking out at you now is the same with the spot that i have as it was back then but just to keep with this point um oh my gosh there's so many things i want to tell you and i just want you were talking about those first days or maybe even weeks in which you're getting your resolve together and you're figuring out how you're going to move forward uh in yes. a full way recover thank you and those six days in the hospital were just something else but i remember that when i right so the whole idea of and they had to test me. They came in, who's the president? And then you go, my God, they're asking me who the president is and what year it is. Wow, what could have happened to me? Really signals that something major could, has happened and could have been much worse. So I thought, but 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 here I am. It wasn't cognitive, which they were testing. It wasn't muscular. It, it was, again, just to that, that part of the brain that we've mentioned that controls vision. And so 
I was able to, when I left, there was a modeling job that came up. There was a little acting job that came up. And I tested myself without telling anyone, no agent, no the clients. And I was able to do both things without anyone having any idea. I bumped into something at one point because I was getting used to a part of my visual field not being there. <laughs> I was able to, at a certain point, laugh. Thank God. Ha ha, I bump. As long as you're not bumping into something that's then pricking you somewhere. Yeah. But I really learned to shoot my eyeball shoot my eyeballs, shoot my eyeballs over there. Because if I look straight ahead, I have that spot missing here. So what do I do? You move your eyeballs. I don't even move my head, move my eyeballs. It's there. Then move head and eyeballs, move head and eyeballs. So everything appears again, but it's, yeah, I have to switch the eyeballs. So being in front of a camera as for my professional life, I'm sorry, I'm talking around this. What I'm trying to say is it made me aware, Christina, of the most incredible computer ever designed, which has been by God called the brain. Mm. I don't know how the hell this thing has been created, but what an incredible thing. Because I look out of my desktop now and I, I see you and I see a lot of things here, but there's a spot on my desktop that is missing. No one can see that looking at me. I see that looking out. And how lucky because of what I do. I mean, I'm not really following those two careers now. I'm happily doing other things, but no one can tell. No one can tell that I walk around with this. So I, I'm not saying that's good. That's bad. I don't have pity for pe stroke survivors who, who are, have a paralysis. There's no, no better, but it's just amazing. It's amazing. It's amazing how things happen. And to be so grateful, it made me be so grateful. Oh my God, that you wake up in the morning, like that famous quote says, I have received two gifts this morning and they were my eyes. I was actually going to add one of the one of the questions I had planned to ask you was how it affected. How did the stroke affect changes in your personality? And, you, and you've already referenced gratitude. Oh my God, gratitude. Really understanding, even though I, you know, raised in a household that that really pushed for my mother and her mother, certainly with gratitude and being grateful for what's all that's given to you. But you know, I didn't quite get that <laughs> until suddenly, oh, health crisis. That is just so huge. And I still have to learn, after, after going through all of this, I have to just remind myself of all that I can, that I have to be grateful for. Oh my gosh. And that can change one's day, as you know, so much. And what else has it given me that life is short because we don't think that when we're young, even though I was, you know, the end of my 30s when this happened. I mean, you don't you don't think that. You just think you're indestructible. You're a superhero. No, 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 no. But I had a very hard time going back to dance class. That was something I had to walk away from. It was just post-traumatic stress. So I just couldn't do it. And that's, hey, I wasn't a professional dancer. Gratitude, gratitude. I didn't make my living from dance. Thank God I could walk away from this. Dance had been such a critical and important part of your life that had to be really, really hard to do, to walk away from it. Did you ever go back to it? You know, it was, Christina, and I did go back after the stroke to try, and it was just too difficult. And so I just thought, well, you know what? Like I was saying to you, okay, I'm not a professional dancer. And I was not in dance class every week for my whole life. There were many years I didn't go to dance class, but I was just starting to go again. 
So it was very hard, but it wasn't as hard as if it would have been my the way I, I earned a living, I think. And I my my love affair with my original dreams of being a ballerina had ended a you know, I got over that a while before. So how is it that doing the one thing I have always loved since I was a little bitty thing? How did I get this horror? Well, I should, you know what? I don't even think of it as horrible anymore. But how did I have this health crisis come about from doing something that I love? And Christina, I don't think of it as horrible anymore. I am grateful for it. It showed me that I had to make a switch and it's kind of directional change with things on certain parts of my life. So, what kind of change? Well, there was career stuff. I was still kind of following an acting career that wasn't really going the way, certainly nothing like the modeling, the huge modeling career I had. And it was getting on in years with the, with the career, the acting career and not really feeling like it was moving. And there's a certain point, you know, we all have to make a living and it just became, there was something that felt off when that strong part of you knows, what am I doing? You know, what year is it? What, where am I in my life? What's going on with, with me right now? And that helped me to, to, I mean, to just know that there are other things to do. I didn't know quite what, but then I wrote a book to help uh, the inner life. I've always been very called, and this the stroke really helped me see that, Christina. The inner life, the spiritual life, however you want to call it, uh, has always uh, been the thing that has gotten me through, and that's what my book is about, although the target audience was models and their mothers. But, um, you know, we have to gird ourselves from the inside, and kids have to learn this so you can really deal with anything that life throws at you. Were, were these the kinds of questions that you were asking before or after the stroke? Well, I was raised with a mom, God bless her. We had a lot of issues, but she always spoke like this. We always spoke about how life is very difficult and for difficult for this person, this community, this, and look at how unfair the world is. And there's great beauty and you, we can turn it around and human beings are amazing. So that, that really spiritual principles, uh, my mother was amazing with. So I had a lot of this from her and it was something I was always interested in, Christina, as a kid. Um, but I never thought, I didn't want to go into being a rabbi or a minister or a priest, but it, it, it just makes sense that that's where everything is, is inside. And then it was reinforced after this health crisis. Absolutely. And I, I appreciate after I wrote the book to help people from the inside, the book is good life tools to have, but certainly for the younger people. But, you know, to go on a little to the speaking tour, the book tour that I did after, and I realized, oh, I like this. So I started speaking and more of a kind of a motivational speaker. And I really love the idea. I've coached people throughout my life without thinking of doing it as a career. And now I'm like, yeah, I like that. I like to, I want to add that too. And the opportunity was created uh, because of this. Yes. Can, you can you talk to me a bit about what you did uh, to recover following your stroke? So the Western medicine, and thank God for Western medicine. So I had those six days in the hospital with, you know, whatever the drugs that they had to put me on. And then I left the hospital and this, they explained to me, the doctor, that thank God they imaged me a few months later, CAT scan, that the left arterial artery <laughs> that had the dissection had healed. And to my neurologist, she said, well, that is, well, that's what she cared about because that's the big deal. You want that. She wanted that to heal. And she was hoping that that would happen. So when I asked, well, what about this leftover, this partial visual field deficit? She said that I, she really had a feeling because I'm, I was healthy before this, no family history, that eventually 
it would just keep shrink, shrinking and be a little dot. She said, but she can't promise anything. She was very clear. And I know she's doctors are not God. And they kind of wish you luck, Western medicine. And that's what my experience was. So when I, there was a lot of post-traumatic stress. So I had to go to my meditations and I started, you know, doing yoga more again and, and doing my transcendental meditation. And then um, acupuncture in China, they give in the hospital, as soon as someone has a stroke, immediately administer acupuncture. And, nor, and that generally brings down the aftermath of a stroke. So my aftermath, if you will, is that the partial visual field deficit, it probably would have been much, it would probably almost be gone right now if I had had acupuncture right away. We, that's not how we do it here, okay? So I started doing acupuncture and then it's all, you know, I was raised on a very good, healthy diet. I really just reinforced that again in my life. Again, the meditation, I can't stress enough. The internal life helps us heal our organs. Um, and um, then there's something, there's a doctor, Dr. Rind in Maryland, who my mom found, who has something called Relox, R-E-L-O-X. And basically it's, a, and he's had success with stroke patients and other people with other, um, you know, health crises, health illnesses that they're combating. And it's basically an intravenous feed of a, a cocktail of magnesium and a lot of other nutrients and supplements. And you get oxygen first, you take a lot of oxygen in, you sit in a, sit back on a chair, and then this intravenous feed of this cocktail of supplements and magnesium mostly, which is supposed to be, you know, I, oh, I don't remember all the medical terms, but it's doing something to the blood and it's feeding the brain and it's trying to wake up those sleeping cells, I call them. I don't like to say dead cells. I understand that the Western medical field has to say that sometimes, but I choose not to say that. I believe they're still sleeping. They're just asleep and we're trying to wake them up, which other doctors agree with me on, the more renegade Western doctors. But, um, you know, our language is so powerful, Christina. So I don't want to talk about my brain as there's dead cells there from that one moment in time 10 years ago. I, they're sleeping and they may be sleeping for, for a lot longer and they may suddenly wake up. So I have to, how am I thinking about things? How, how grateful am I being? How, you know, am I, am I living my life doing, be, being, the best of me so I can then be in service to others in whatever way, being in service, as you know, just want to be clear for the audience. You can be an actor and be in service. You can be an accountant and be in service, a doctor, a journalist. I don't care what, you know, work in garbage disposal. Whatever it is, is beautiful. You do, you do whatever you're supposed to do, just doing it. Because I had been, I after that, I wasn't sure what I'm supposed to do vocationally, you know, and I'm finding it now, thank God, and large to do because of this. And, um, getting out there and being and you know living the life living your life as best you can and 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 giving to others when did you because you mentioned earlier claudia that within uh was it days or weeks after the stroke you had both a, an acting gig and a modeling gig and you went out of your way not to tell anyone not to tell your agent not to tell your management team that you had had the stroke and i can certainly understand why you said you didn't want to be considered disabled when did you get to the point, because you're now an ambassador for the American Stroke Association, when did you get to a point where you felt comfortable that you could talk about this and then take it a step further and work to raise awareness about stroke? So that those first two jobs were right out of the hospital. I mean, they were within the first few weeks after this happened. It was just, I see it as the universe saying, you really have nothing to be ashamed of. I get it. Your ego's bruised. Let's get over it help others. 
author. And I, I think in 2012, toward the end, I started to think, okay, it's time to, I think I can talk about this. And that little voice kept, sh you know, being raised in the entertainment industry in a certain sense as I was, you know, you just, ex you're supposed to be perfect. There's no perfect from the outside, outside. And, and when I was at the height, they didn't really want, models didn't really have voices that much. Now it's a whole different, so it's like just shh, stay thin and model and be sexy. And, um, and I think that even though I rejected that and I knew there was much more to me and much more to many women and men who model obviously, and that was ridiculous way of seeing yourself. I, I, I did, I, you know, I'm, per I'm perfect, I'm perfect. I have to be perfect, mannequin. So this idea that now I'm not perfect. Of course, no one is ever perfect, but that's a whole other conversation. But in my brain, with that limited box-like way of looking at oneself, I'm not perfect. And if I tell my manager and agents, oh my God, there I'm gonna, ah, no one's gonna want to, you know, be with. Why? So I was so scared of that, Christina, and um, and it also is how I felt about myself. Am I not going to be attractive to men? I wasn't. I was single at that point. You know, of course, I mean, when I next had a boyfriend after that, I mean, like, what guy, can you imagine who wants to be with a guy who's not going to have compassion for anything that, you bye-bye. So I didn't have a problem there. It was, there was never a, but it was all my, you know, that's how one, we see ourselves. And it was making, it was having, my, it was a check-in about, okay, I've, I think I have a good sense of self-esteem and I wrote a book about it and sense of self-worth and confidence. And okay, so apply it to yourself. For heaven's sakes, compassion for yourself. Easy. No one goes through life unscathed. And so now I can help others. And now I can, and thank you, God, for not the, the two outcomes we mentioned before that could have happened. What was the reception when people in the industry, you know, when you told your agent, when you told your colleagues, what kind of response did you get? Not as bad as I thought it would. I was terrified. I was so terrified and they just were so shocked. I mean, when I started to tell some good friends, it was like, what? Because like me, most people, even today, it's a challenge, as you know. Well, the idea of stroke you think of, as I did and my educated parents did, that older people with heart conditions, pre-existing conditions get strokes. No young person gets, well, that's just not true. So that's another reason why I wanted to be a spokesperson for this cause and for the American Stroke Association, sure, and whatever way I can do on my own with it to help spread information, to help spread facts about stroke, to help people. You can't prevent accidents necessarily, but to be aware that these things are happening. You are now an ambassador for the American Stroke Association. What are the early signs that people should know of a possible stroke? So there's a wonderful acronym, ACT FAST, and the acronym is the F-A-S-T. So if your face is drooping, it's F-A, your arms are, are not, you know, are not moving or not, right, um, immobile. Um, S, speech, and which I add sight, because that's what happened to me. They need to add sight. I think they're amending that, uh, hopefully. Speech is you can't hear, understand the English that someone's saying, and they, they can't understand you, or you. what happened with me with the visual field, partial visual field. That's and then T is time to call. So if you notice this in yourself, if you notice this in a loved one, or if you notice this in a stranger, like what what happened to me? The kindness of the stranger helped me use my phone and sat with me for as long as I needed. But she was the one who said, get to the, oh, sorry. So F-A-S and then T, time to call 911. 
get to the hospital. Do not do what I did. I can't stress this enough, which is go home. Right, because you didn't get to the hospital until almost a day after you started experiencing your first your first symptoms. Yeah. Insane. Thank you, God. I just have to say thank you, God, that I'm alive. Again, because of that, I forgot to put that in. So thank you for saying that. Yeah, be extra cautious. Be the nervous mother part of yourself. Don't do what I did. Oh, it's fine. Eh. And I don't blame it on my dad, too, because he was also, it's fine. He didn't, he didn't know. We didn't know. Now, that's why I want to get the information out there. So act fast. If you notice something in yourself or someone else, no matter if you know them or not, help someone. In your book, Finding the Supermodel in You, The Insider's Guide to Teen Modeling, you write about an experience early in your modeling career as a teenager in France and your agent in Paris suggesting to have your ears pinned back a cosmetic surgical procedure. You wrote that your ears stuck out from my head at the top of the ear. The agent recommended a doctor there in France, but you wanted to have the procedure done in New York, but that surgeon made the situation worse. What happened? Oh my gosh, I forgot. That was a hospital visit overnight. <laughs> that was way before this. That's right. Oh man. Uh, so it's one of the, it's, I've been told the easiest cosmetic surgeries to do, and it's the only one I will never have another one after this experience, let me tell you, um, with cosmetic surgery, I mean, the ear, pinning the ears back, so they stuck out, they just stuck out at the top, and I would have grown into them, but I think I was 18, 19 then, and it's still, uh, fashion at that time was, was just so different than it is now, my God, so much has changed in the last five years even, thank God, transgender, and this, and everyone, there's just much more inclusive and different looks Oh, your ears stick out. Who cares? It would be fabulous now. But back then, you know, it was this, it was this min window mannequin. We didn't move like this, Christina. I know, no, <laughs> I'm doing this ridiculous move to Christina. Um, but it was, it felt like when I think about it, it was so, you have to be perfect. You know, it was much more um, rigid back then. So they suggest, the French agents suggested, I was living in Paris at the time, they were my college years, that we pin the ears back and he had a doctor and I, felt as an American, no, 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 no. I'm not going to do anything in France. I'm going to go home to America. Oh, <laughs> God. And pick the wrong doctor who later on, oh, it was just so awful. I, I don't even know how you botch up pinning ears back. It's that easy. Mm. But I think evidently this doctor mostly did breast augmentation. We found out later. Yeah. <laughs> I think there was cartilage in the right ear and it just, something didn't look right after the surgery. And I get back to France and my French agent was aghast, as anyone would have been. And um, he sent me to the doctor he originally wanted me to go to. And this doctor, wonderful guy, I wish I could remember his name. I have to find it somewhere. He, I, that, I needed to be overnight. And they had to take a little section of the skin we have in our bikini line, ladies at least. You don't even see the scar. You couldn't even tell. It's an extra little piece of flesh that anyone has. And he put it behind the right ear to make the right ear look normal again. And um, God bless him. God bless him. In your book, reflecting on that experience, you had written, I often tend to be too independent for my own good and not ask for help when I need it. And so I'm wondering, were there ways in which you saw aspects of your teenage self, because this happens around, I think, 18, 19 or so, did aspects of your teenage self show up when you were recovering from your stroke? Meaning, were there moments where you found yourself refusing to ask for help when you should following the stroke? That's a great question. Oof. Yeah, that's a wonderful question. I remember that. Wow. 
my parents, you know, my parents had been divorced a very long time, but they always were able to, since I was a little girl, but they were able to come together around stuff with, with me. And so even with the stroke, I was an adult, had been adult for many years. They both helped. It's just a crazy Christina that I lived in LA for a decade and about six to eight months after I moved back home to Manhattan, this happens. And now, why do I say that? Well, also I'm not married. I wasn't married then. I'm not married now. So there's not a, a husband and a, and a, and a support network. Right. There is, but my parents are here. God bless them. They're old. And, and, and my mom and I are very close and they were there. So I was able to ask her for help. But I say that with LA is because you drive in LA, as you know, and you don't drive in Manhattan, thank God. And with this partial visual field deficit, I didn't have to be, oh, what do I, how do I live in LA still with it? You know what I mean? So it just, things went to be grateful for how things happen, even with difficult times. But yeah, I definitely needing to ask for help. I mean, they definitely showed me and, and, um, it's still, it's difficult. So such a great question. I wonder if I, if a lot has changed since then. I mean, I have to think about that, but I did see how much I needed. Certainly my mom. I mean, part of the reason why I ask too, Claudia, because I know even just with my own brain injury recovery process, because it is an invisible injury, because it is something that uh, neither you see nor others see, sometimes incorrectly, we might still see ourselves as whole. And so therefore, I don't want nor need to lean on anyone. And one of the toughest things to do can be asking for help. And so when I read your book and, and read your account of that incident in France, I couldn't help but wonder, did you in some ways become, you know, the self-reliant teen self? Because you'd been such an adult, quite honestly, at, at such an early age. Yeah. Did any of that factor into your recovery, which is like, hey, if I could travel the globe at 13, I can certainly fend for myself where the stroke is concerned? Yeah, it's such a great question. And I think that's just so powerful because we, that's unfortunately, I mean, it shouldn't take a health crisis to make us realize that we all need each other and uh, no man is an island. But um, I did see that. And I did see how hard that was to ask for help because then I look, having to look at myself as needing it in a way that I couldn't imagine I'd have to look at myself in a, you know, in that way. And um, it was, yeah, it still is, you know, also because you can't see it, as you said, and it doesn't really, I mean, there were some years, I guess the first few years after Christina were sure I, I would need to sleep more and stuff, but I don't think of myself that way now, but I have to remind myself, well, wait a second. I know that there's still sleeping cells, cells that are asleep. So if I want to keep waking them up, whether I'm doing this for the rest of my life, that's fine. So I have to sleep more. I have to be cognizant of my sleep and taking care of myself with my food and reaching out if I need. And I don't reach out for support around the stroke emotionally, at least because I, I tend to think I don't really need it. But, you know, it's always good to look at. And, and maybe there was a stroke support group that I went to for a few months, I think. In Manhattan, at one of the hospitals, my doctor told me about that was lovely. I mean, it was me and a bunch of 90 year olds. Let me tell you, Christine, I mean, it was hysterical. It was great for the ego because I was like, I'm fine. <laughs> right. Yeah, you're the young muse <laughs> that was part of the group. <laughs> and they and they felt better because not that in no, no weird way. This was beautiful for all of us, myself and the, the elderly 
my elderly friends in the group, but they were like, a young person can have this because it's still, we don't think that way. And I'm not even, you know, young, young. I mean, you're talking about the eight-year-old in the hospital had it or someone in their 20s. So they felt a little better about themselves. And support is, it's a great question. And it's something I have to check in with myself over. And I'm happy you brought it up just to always look. If I, where am I, if I'm, if I'm burning too much, a candle at both ends, no, 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 no. Especially for those of us who've had some kind of a brain injury or, or any health crisis, but the brain. And my brain needs to rest. It's the slowest organ to heal, Christina, as you may know. And so it's the slowest organ to heal. So it's, you know, it needs the cold soft blankets. Right. <laughs> That's how I think about all. Oh, I need some water brain. Do you need a little nap? Okay, let's go. Yeah, it needs to be nurtured <laughs> just a little bit. According to the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, someone in the United States has a stroke every 40 seconds. And every four minutes, someone dies of a stroke. Claudia, what did the risk of almost losing your life tell you about how you wanted to live the rest of your life? Oh, I mean, woo, just hearing that again, I can never get stop getting chills when I hear those statistics. You know, but I feel removed when you read that, Christina. I think it's, it's my body's, my way, my brain's, my emotions' way of defending itself against feeling too much pain. Because that is something when you hear what you just read, really let that sink in. So what was your question again? I'm sorry. Just the, the... What does the risk of almost losing your life tell you about how you want to live the rest of your life? Because I guess we all have to ask that of ourselves. So how do I want to live the rest of my life? I, I can't be happy if it's just me and mine. So how can I make a difference that we're all, and I, I believe that helping people gird themselves up, gird, I want to make sure I'm not saying guard, because people think I say guard, gird oneself up from the inside. So you can be, you know, Stella Adler, the great acting teacher once said, actors must have, and this is for humans, the hide of a rhinoceros, but the something, the heart of a, of a, of a little bird or so. I mean, or, so in other words, I'm kind of reversing that, be, be, be pleasant outside, be kind. But inside, you have to be tough. I mean, you you have to you have to be strong and ready and know that there's there's great suffering. I mean, history shows us this. But it doesn't mean that that we can't keep working for the good of all. And where, where's my moral compass? And let me make sure I check that. And how am I being in the world? And I tell you, there's a part of me that I, I don't know. In another life, Christina, maybe to get into politics to be to be a congresswoman may have kind of interested. It doesn't now, believe me, it doesn't now, but there is a part of me that I feels like, wow, yeah, that would be cool to really make change in a legislative way. But then there's all of us who, there's so many other things to do in life in ways that we can make change. So I wanna, just life is such an incredible gift. So I just don't wanna waste my time in the misery and the sadness, it's necessary to see what's happening and the reality in order to change, but not to get pulled under by the, the fear and the hatred, which can play out in so many ways. So, Thank you so much. My guest is Claudia Mason, author, actor, supermodel, stroke survivor, and brain injury advocate. I think though, Claudia, I should also add superwoman to your title. Thank you so much for joining me. 
Thank you so much, Christina. Back to you, Superwoman. <laughs> Thank you. Claudia's book is Finding the Supermodel in You, The Insider's Guide to Teen Modeling. Details on how you can order the book are on the Me, Myself, and TBI website.